Well, good morning. It's good to see you today, and we're glad to be here. We're glad that you set your clocks forward, and we're glad that you arrived here on time. There'll be more arriving later, I'm sure. They'll be here for the second service. I want you to confess something with me. Confession is good. Confession means I agree with this statement. It comes from 2 Timothy chapter 3, and it's in verses 16 and 17. It's going to come up on the screen, and I just want you to say it after me. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for conviction, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that I may be completely equipped. Say that. For every good work. This is the most important thing to know. It's not going to be the words that I bring or the words that Pastor Josue bring or Pastor Carlos brings. It is the very words of God, the scripture, that will make you complete and ready for every good work. God's eyes are going to and fro across the land to find those who are faithful to him so that he might call them out for work. And so we must be thoroughly equipped. As pastor says, we'd be ready, ready, ready for that moment when God calls us. Well, you know that today there's probably a place in your life that there's a hole. There's probably a place in your life that's broken in some way. All of us go through heartache. We live in a fallen world. And we know that in that fallen world, we're going to constantly be assailed by the evil one, by the world itself, by the flesh, the devil. And so we know that there's going to come brokenness in our life. There's going to come places when things break, relationships break. Many of you could testify today of a broken relationship in life that even today haunts you. There's things that have broken. There are businesses that didn't succeed, and there has investments that didn't get made, and there's moments when cars break down in the worst possible time. So we know in this life there's going to be misery. The Bible says in this life there are going to be troubles. There are going to be moments in life. But today I want to introduce you to somebody who has a good word for you, and his name is Paul. Paul, one of the great teachers, wrote most of the New Testament. This Paul gives us the greatest teaching we can have on the subject of what happens when things go wrong. You know, when things go wrong, we have some choices. We can just give up. We can just say, well, I'm not going to do this anymore. I'm going to go someplace else. That happens in church all the time, amen? I don't like it here anymore. I'm going somewhere else. And the truth is, sometimes we can just sit and stew in it. You ever do that? I mean, it just goes wrong, and you just sit down, and you just say, I'm just going to be mad. I'm going to be mad. I'm going to be fussy. I'm going to be grumpy. Anybody talks to me, I'm going to bite their head off. I'm going to just be mean about it. I'm just going to sit here and just stew. And then there's other times when God works in our lives, we get up and get moving. We get on with what we were doing. We get back to what God would have us to do. Well, the Apostle Paul is a great writer, and the reason he's a great writer is because he's just like you and I. Now, we look at him, and we think he's a superstar. We think he's a really great man. We think he's just wonderful because of everything he teaches in the Bible. But I want you to see in this passage 
that he identifies very much with where all of us are at some time. So I want you to turn your Bibles, if you would, to Philippians chapter 3. And this passage is, is kind of the guiding passage for us throughout this series, The Solution, 3 two, one. It says here in verse 13, he says, Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do. Paul says right here in the beginning, he says, Look, I'm in the same place you are. I haven't made it yet. That's hard for us to imagine because we think of him as that superstar. That you were talking about the superhero. He's the superhero of the faith. He said, look, I don't have it all together. I'm not the guy you think I am. I have problems. I have issues in my life. I haven't yet attained that perfection that Christ had where in all circumstances he could be exactly as he were to be. There are times I mess up. There are times I don't do things right. There are times when I'm confused and I'm lost. He even says in in Romans, he says, wretched man that I am, the things that I want to do, I don't do, and the things that I don't want to do, that's what I do. He's just like you and I, and he wants you to know that today. The man speaking to you out of this passage, inspired by the very words of God, he is speaking to you exactly where you are. And I don't know where you are, but you do. And Paul says, I'm right there with you. I haven't made it yet. I don't have it all together. Other people look at me and say, whoa, you seem to have it all together. Not a chance. Not a chance. So the importance is to know the person writing to you today, Paul, says, look, I'm right where you are. I'm right in that problem where you are. He says, but this one thing I do. This is what I do when I get to the point where I can't figure out what to do next. When I can't get to the next point, this is what I do. And so the words that he's going to share with us, inspired by the very heart of God, says, I don't know how to get it all together. I don't have it all together. But I tell you, this is what I do. And when I do this, I find that I can move on in life. So let's see exactly what he says. He says, first of all, he says, forgetting what lies behind. Wow. Kind of amazing, isn't it? Forgetting. Now, that word forgetting means to completely just throw it out of your mind. He says, forgetting what's behind me. You know, when I first started driving a car, I was mesmerized by that little thing above the dashboard that hangs down there it's that little thing little round thing and it has a a mirror in it and I look in it and I see what's behind me for some reason I just couldn't take my eyes off that I always want to see who was behind me I was constantly driving through life looking at what was behind me some of you are living looking in a rear view mirror all the time You're running your life looking at what happened before. You're looking at, oh, how they hurt me. Oh, how we talk about it all the time here. You've become a victim of your circumstances. You're living in the past. You're driving and through life, but you're looking in a rearview mirror. Oh, I could do it, but you know what they did to me. Oh, you know what that church did to me. I can't do that anymore. Oh, you know how my family treats me. I can't. Oh, and I have this physical infirmity. I can't do this. I can't do that. And suddenly we become a victim of circumstances. Paul says, wait a minute. You need to stop thinking about what's behind you. 
There's nothing you can do about what's behind you. Stop looking in the rearview mirror. Stop living your life looking in a little tiny mirror that magnifies everything that's behind you. He says, I want you to get rid of that. Now, could the Apostle Paul say that with authority? I want you to turn to a passage in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. A few pages over to the left, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul says, I'm going to give you a little glimpse of my life. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I want you to look in verse 22. He says, are they Hebrews? Well, so am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? Well, I speak if I'm insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I have received from the Jews 39 lashes. I'm thinking after the first thing hits me, I'm not doing this anymore. Honestly, I mean, this guy's a man. Five times he takes 39 lashes. Five times he takes 39 lashes. How many have ever been lashed? Okay, my dad did probably. But five times, 30 times. That's just the beginning. Look over in the next part of the verse. Three times I've been beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, literally, to death. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day, I have spent in the deep. I have been in frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, in danger from robbers, dangered by my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor, hardship, through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from these such external things, there's the daily pressure of me of concern for all the churches. Guess what? Don't think about all that's gone before you. How many of you have had a life like that? How many of us would say, well, I've suffered for the cross like that? If you read the voice of the martyrs every day, or if you read open doors every day, you know what martyrs go through. This man says, look, that's my life. That's my life. But I don't dwell on that. I don't look in the rearview mirror and say, I've been lashed 39 times. I'm not doing this anymore. And, and on top of that, <laughs> guess where he's writing this letter from? Prison, where he will spend the rest of his life until he's killed for his faith. He's in prison and he's writing you, don't look back. Don't think what's come before you because it says in the very words of God, in the very words he wrote to the Corinthians, behold, all things are made new. Everything is a new creation in Christ. Don't dwell on the past. Don't live in the past. Don't look in the past. And you know, on top of that, I even think one more thing. You know there are people that are in the body of Christ in the church that Paul has thrown in prison. You see, before he ever became a faithful follower of Christ, before he ever met Christ, he persecuted the church. There were people in Jerusalem, when he went back to preach in Jerusalem, that he had thrown in prison. And the family of Stephen was there, and he held their coats while they stoned Stephen to death. All that guilt. Can you imagine how weighty that guilt would be? He says, don't look in the past. He says, this one thing I do, I don't dwell on the past. I don't dwell on the past. 
If you ever played football, the most amazing people in football are called cornerbacks. Not quarterbacks, cornerbacks. Cornerbacks are on an island out there. The fastest man on the other team is across from them. He's going to blow by them so fast that they're not even going to be able to imagine he's there. And every time they're one-on-one with the fastest guy on the other team who knows what he's doing, but you don't know. And you have to react. You know the greatest quality of a cornerback is a short memory. I may have gotten beat last time, but I'm not going to get beat this time. I don't remember getting beat for that touchdown. I remember the time I tipped the pass away or I intercepted. A short memory. Christian, you need a short memory. Some of you need to shorten up your memory because you're dwelling on the past and it's killing you. It keeps you from moving forward. You're just sitting still, stewing in it. You're dwelling on what's behind you. God says, look, through the Apostle Paul, get over it. Not get over in the sense it never happened. Not get over in the sense that it doesn't hurt. Not that you forget that it ever occurred at all. But you've got to move on. He says, this one thing I do is I forget. I just forget about what's in the past. Then look in chapter 3, verse uh, 13 again in Philippians. He says, secondly, reaching forward to what lies ahead. So I forget what's in the past, and I begin to reach forward for what lies in the future. That's why the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. Amen? The windshield is big. The rearview mirror is little. Pay attention to the big window, not the little window. I press forward. I start going forward. Look at this this marvelous encouragement for what lies ahead. And when he says what lies ahead, you know what that says? What's right in front of you. You see, the solution is right in front of you. It's not behind you. It's not dwelling on the past. It's in the future. It's right in front of you. And he says, I want you to know the solution that you're looking for, what you're trying to find, that peace you're looking for, that shalom, that oneness with Christ, that world that you know exists but you can't quite get to, he says, it's right in front of you. It's just right in front of you, and it's the big window. Pay attention to the big window, not the little window. And then... Thirdly, he says this, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That word pressing forward is actually the word for persecution. It means to literally press in, to kind of cram into a small space, to move in slow, quickly, but to jam into a very small space. So I want you to press in. I want you to intently move in on this. And he says, it's a goal. Now, the word is interesting. It's the only, word, only time it's ever used in Scripture, and it's the word scopus. And it's the word we get telescope or microscope. And it comes from the picture of a watchman on a tower watching the horizon. The goal of that watchman is to make sure that nobody sneaks up on him. His eyes are constantly open. If you've ever been in the military and you've walked to watch, you know that your job, your one job, is to make sure nobody sneaks up on us. My son-in-law has been in Afghanistan and Iraq, and when they stop at night, they pull the Humvees in back to back. There are four ways all with their backs to each other. They mark off the distance out, and then one person's going to stay awake, and he's going to watch. That's the word there. It means what I'm watching for. He says, I press forward to what I'm looking at. If you've ever fired a gun in your life, you know that you hit what you're looking at. You don't have to aim, you just have to look at it. 
it's important to realize God says, look, I want you to press forward to the goal, what you're looking at, what you're seeing right in front of you. I want to place this truth for you, and I want you to press forward. And he says, because it's a prize. It's a prize. It's a gift. Now, it's interesting. He doesn't use the word here, prize, like we use for winning a trophy. We don't use it. It's not the word prize here that's like, uh, I ran the fastest race. It's a judge's prize. The word is unique here, and it means a judge's prize. For example, if you've ever been a part of, a, of, say, a science fair, and you had a project, there would be judges who would walk around, and they would look at your project, and they would determine, based upon their conception of what's good, bad, and indifferent, whether you win or whether you lose. You see, the prize that's sitting out there in front of you is in the mind of Christ, It's that very prize that he designed. It says God doesn't look on the outside. It doesn't, the race doesn't go to the fastest. The race doesn't go to the strongest. The race goes to the one with the right heart. He says, God looks upon the heart. He says, so here's what I do. I don't look behind me. I look through that big window in the front, and I press on to what I'm looking at, which is the goal of the upward call of Jesus Christ. Now, oh, that's amazing. So what is that? I mean, he's kind of said all this stuff, but he doesn't give us kind of a concrete explanation. What is it? He says, I have not obtained it. I have not reached it. But he doesn't say what the it is. Well, the wonderful thing about Scripture is it's all put together for that purpose so that you read the whole thing. So what I want you to do is back up, rewind the tape, and I want you to look in verse 12. Because in verse 12, he explains what it is that he is trying to attain. He says, not that I have already obtained it or I've already become perfect. The word perfect there means to be finished. That is, I've gotten to the goal. I've gotten to where I'm supposed to be. But I press on. Here it is, that same word. So that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. He says, I am searching for the very thing that Jesus laid hold of my life for, my purpose. I am stretching forward for the purpose that Jesus Christ called me in his life. Do you ever imagine that? Do you ever imagine? You probably have lots of friends, and not all of them know Jesus. Probably the majority don't know Jesus. And the truth is, in their lives, you're wondering what in the world they're here for. But in your life, because you know Christ, you have purpose. You have purpose in your life. God says, I laid hold of you not just to become be a part of a church. I didn't lay hold of you just to become a part of a, some organization. I laid hold of you for a purpose. Can you imagine the purpose that Paul realized what he was? Well, the purpose was he was going to take the good news to the Gentiles. A Jew taking the good news to the Gentiles. That was going to be his role. That was his calling. That was his purpose. So in life, he says, look, I want you to lay aside what's behind. I want you to drop all that behind you. I want you to look forward to the prize. And the prize you're pressing forward to is the calling of God in your life, your purpose. Now, me, you say, well, preacher, what's my purpose? What, what, what would be my purpose? How do I know what my purpose is? How can I possibly know? I know Paul's purpose but I don't know my purpose. Why am I here? 
Why am I part of this marvelous church? Why am I part of this ministry? What am I supposed to do? Well, the truth is, he says, the high calling of who? Jesus Christ. So what did Jesus Christ tell us that we were supposed to do? Well, it's pretty normal for us to remember. And every time I'm here, I'm going to remind you of it. In Matthew 28, 18 through 20, he says, All authority has been given unto me. Go, therefore, and what? That's what he said. Every person that's ever come to know Christ has a singular purpose, and that purpose is to know that you are to make disciples. You are to duplicate yourself. You are to create another disciple. You're to create another believer. You're to create another convert to Christ. Whether you're here, whether you're watching from home, if wherever it is, Every Christian's responsibility, according to the very words of God in Matthew, and let's just look there to make sure you know where that is. Matthew 28, it's the last words that Jesus has on this earth. Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given. Go and make disciples of all men, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. That's interesting, isn't it? He says, look what he says. He says that, Go therefore and make disciples, but look, observing all things I command you in the image. But that baptizing, it says, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? God is the three-in-one God. And so if we were to ask God, well, God, you know, I understand that I'm supposed to make disciples. And I understand that it's right in front of me. But what do you mean by that? Well, if we were to ask God the Father, here's what he'd say. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6. Back in the Old Testament, Moses is writing. And in Deuteronomy 6, he says this. If you were to ask God the Father, who am I supposed to make a disciple Who am I supposed to disciple in my life? Who am I, quote, responsible for? He would say in chapter uh, 6, verse 1, Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you are going over to possess so that you, your son, and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep his statutes and its commandments, which I command you all the days of your life. God the Father would say, you know who you're most responsible for? Your family. Your family. It's right in front of you. Who am I supposed to make a disciple of? Hey, it's right in front of you. It's your family. Your children are dependent upon you to know this one that saved you. Your job in life I'm sure we think of making sure our children are successful, making sure our children have a living, make sure our children find the right mate, making sure our children do the right thing, make sure our children are respectable. But the truth is, at the end of your life, the one thing you want to know is they're going to be in heaven with you. If you get to the end of life and your children don't know Jesus Christ, let me tell you, that's disappointment. That's heartbreak of the highest level. He says, look, if I ask the Father, who am I supposed to make a disciple? The very first thing says, your family. Everyone in your family. As a grandfather, 
I feel just as responsible for my grandchildren. Every day I pray for my grandchildren. Every day I write a devotion to my grandchildren. Every time I get the chance, I talk with my grandchildren about the truth of God's Word. Why? Because it's my family. God says it begins... Central focus, I want you to be real clear on this, the central focus of discipleship is not the church. It's the family. He created the family first, long before the church ever got here. Many people are bringing, and maybe you're here today, you're bringing your kids hoping that Josue is going to turn them into believers. Well, he's going to try his best, but he's not your, your child. He's not you, the parent. If you're a parent, your total responsibility in life, at the end of life, it's not going to be judged about how rich your kid is, how successful they are, how wonderful he did at soccer, or he did at boxing, or he did at baseball, or some such thing that we invest tons and tons and tons of time in. It's going to be, does he know the master? Will he be in heaven with you? So he says, it's right in front of you. Here, it's right in front of you. It's your family. God the Father would say, your responsibility is to disciple your family. But if I ask God the Son, well, who do you think would be the ones I should disciple? Who should I be the ones that I disciple? Well, turn over to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22, the Master himself tells us that there is a responsibility of every believer in the area of discipleship. And he words it this way. In fact, Pastor Oswey shared this the other day. If you look at chapter 22 of Matthew and look in verse 36, it says, Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. Well, that's kind of a no-brainer. If I'm a believer, I'm going to love God. He says, the second, though, wait a minute, there's another part. Yeah, the second is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And on these two commandments, all the law and the prophets. So if I ask Jesus, who should I be discipling? Who should I be responsible for? Who should I be standing up for, interceding for, praying for, leading, instructing, caring for, looking after? He says, your neighbor. Now, you know what that word neighbor means? Neighbor. It doesn't mean somebody in Bogota, Colombia. He means the person who lives right next door to you. He means the person who lives across the street from you. He needs the person who lives one house over from you. Can you name all the people that live around you? Can you name them and their children? Have you had them in your house to eat? Have you ever served them in any way? You know, many times we think that this is the place discipleship is done. This is not the place discipleship is done. This place some teachings done. But discipleship is done in your neighborhood. Discipleship begins the moment I meet you. The moment I meet you, I begin a process by which I'm praying you're going to come to know Christ and that I'm going to be able to share with you how to live with Christ. Why? Because you're my neighbor. He said, love your neighbor. How? You love yourself? Have you fed yourself lately? Some of you have overdone that one. 
Why have you not fed your neighbor? You love yourself, don't you? Do you go to the movies? Sure I do. Have you ever taken your neighbor? Have you ever had your neighbor over in your yard just to fool around? You know, one of the greatest things, we first moved to this neighborhood was my neighbor James. Everybody told me in the neighborhood that James was mean. James doesn't wave. James drives like this. James goes in his house and he doesn't talk. He doesn't visit. So one day I'm out. I'm having to uh, blow my leaves. If you ever seen my yard, you know what I'm talking about. It's a monumental task. And I'm... And I get over there next to James's yard. And the Lord says... Blow his leaves too. You know, I thought I heard that, but I'm not sure. Steve, go blow his leaves. Oh, God, can you see his leaves? I'm not even going to get mine done. Do you love him like you love yourself? Obviously not. So, you know, just like you do, okay, okay. Now, obedience is doing what I ask you to do when I ask you to do it in a right heart attitude. I did not go over there in a right heart attitude. I went over there because you said so. I start blowing his leaves. About that time, James comes out of his house. He goes down the other end of his yard and starts blowing his leaves. So I blow his leaves all of the part from his house over to mine, blow them off to the road. He blows all up his roads. He goes back in the house. I go back. I said, well, that went well, Lord. <laughs> he got his blown, and I'm still stuck with all this stuff over here. Great job. <laughs> so happy I obeyed you. <laughs> My wife would get out there and help me. It would go faster. <laughs> I'm too old with kids. Anyway, about that time I hear another person's blower working. And who's there beside me but James. And James helps me finish my yard. And James and I become friends. And James eats in my house. And I eat in James's house. And we talk and we share about our faith and our knowledge of who this Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is. Why did it happen? Because you love your neighbor as you love yourself. The master says, you want to know the mark of a godly believer? A mark of a disciple is they love their neighbor. You should know your neighbors. You can go on, pray for every home, bless every home. All those websites, and it'll tell you who your neighbors are if you don't know. You can go on Catawba County GIS and find out who they are. But the truth is, at the end, God says, did you take care of your family? Did you take care of your neighbor? Who do I make disciples of? They're right in front of you. It's your family. It's your neighbor. But then what if we ask the Holy Spirit? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Look over in chapter 14 of Acts. Chapter 14 of Acts. In chapter 14 of Acts, look over in verse 21. Chapter 14 of Acts, verse 21. After they had preached the gospel to that city and had what? Made many disciples. 
they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. What's right in front of you? Jesus says, my kingdom is at hand. It's right in front of you. One of the greatest gifts you've been given today is to be a part of this wonderful church. And the reason this is a wonderful church is not because they all the great worship and all the great teaching and all that. It's wonderful. It really is. It comes from the heart of this church is that they are a kingdom church. They don't believe this is the only place God is going to work. They don't believe that only God's going to come down here at right here in Hickory at this point. They believe that the kingdom, you're a part of one kingdom alliance. You're part of a kingdom that is ruled and reigned by the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's for the whole world. And just by serving here, you are serving in a way that will be a kingdom place. You will be making disciples, not just here, not just in an English service, not just in a Spanish service, not just in a bilingual service, but you're making disciples in Charlotte. You're making disciples in Mexico. You're making disciples in Puerto Rico. You're making disciples all over the world because that's what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. It's right in front of you. It's right in front of you. It's your family. It's your neighbor. And it's a kingdom-minded church that says, the world needs to know this great message of Jesus Christ. Now, the important thing that you need to know today is you can't make a disciple till you know the Master. You could teach the very same things I'm teaching right now in public school if you wanted to. You could teach it in the backyard. You can teach it anywhere. But if it's not taught by one who knows the Master, it's all for nothing. It's just good information. But it's transformation when it's spoken by one who knows the Lord Jesus Christ. Today, you're not going to be able to disciple your family unless you know Jesus. You're not going to be able to disciple your neighbor until you know Jesus. You're not going to be able to disciple the kingdom that is the world that's before us if we don't know Jesus. So today, I want to ask you, have you ever come to a point in your life where you know that you know that you know I have accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior? The Bible says these things have been written that you may know. You may know. And that means to know, to know, to know. To know to the highest degree. To know Him intimately. Today, ask yourself, have I ever come to that point where I have surrendered my life to serve the very master who died for me? The Bible says that you're saved by grace, that it's a free gift, a gift of God. By grace are you saved through what? Faith. Now, some of you are going to tell you it's blind faith. It's a faith you just kind of let go and it happens. That's what the world would tell you. But it's not. It's very real. You know, when I was a little boy, when my, well, in fact, when my children were little, I could stand at the bottom of the steps. Whether it was 10 steps, 20 steps, didn't make any difference. And if I held my hands out, what did my kids do? They jumped. Why? Because they knew I'd catch them. 
They had faith that I would catch them. Today, Jesus is standing just like this. He says, I just want you to jump. It's not blind jumping. It's not jumping to a place in the darkness. It's jumping to the loving arms of the one who went on a cross and died for your sin. So you didn't have to die for your sin. He's the one who gave his entire life. It says he emptied himself of all that made him God and came in the form of a man just like you and I. And he says, jump. Just jump in my arms. If today you can just let go and say, I'm not going to worry about all these things. I'm tired of the past. I'm tired of what my life was like. I don't want to keep carrying this burden. I don't want to keep carrying this load. Jump. Just jump. Just jump into the arms of a Savior who's waiting for you. Bow your heads if you would and close your eyes. It's a moment that's real important. Would you say today, be honest with me, would you say today just by raising your hand, I've never trusted Jesus as my personal Savior. I've been in church, and I've been here, and I've been a part of things, but I've never personally trusted Him as Savior and Lord. If you just raise your hand, put it up, put it right back down. I've never prayed to receive Christ in my life. I want you to pray with me this prayer. Father, I'm a sinner. That means I don't know what I'm doing. But I don't want to keep doing what I've been doing before. I want my life to change. I want a new start in life. And today I come before you trusting. I'm jumping, Lord, into the arms of your son. And I'm praying, Lord, that you'll receive me as I am. The Bible says, just as I am. Lord, I pray today to receive me to you. And I thank you for the wonderful gift of eternal life. Amen. If you prayed that prayer, we're going to ask you to do something. I'm not going to embarrass you. I'm not going to make fun of you. I'm not going to tell you something. I'm not going to make you come up here and make a speech or anything. But if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I just ask that you just, as we begin to sing and everybody stands, that you just walk to the back. Just wherever you are, when everybody stands up, you just walk to the back. There'll be someone back there waiting for you. And they'll explain to you exactly what it means to know Jesus as Savior. Father, we conclude this time with you and the folks that have come to be with us in video. Lord, we just pray that those who come to know you will trust you. But more than that, Lord, that we will look for that prize that's right before us. Our family, our neighbors, the kingdom of heaven. In Jesus' name.